Thanks, Tom. Wow, this is different. I'm not used to being up here. Probably weird seeing me up here. Like, what is Michael doing up there? Kind of asking myself the same question. What's Michael doing here? But we're going to do this, right? So in all seriousness, I am very excited to share with you uh, some of the things that, that God was highlighting in Matthew 12. Some of these things are very relevant. Um, and it's actually kind of cool because when we prayed a little bit earlier, um, some of your guys' prayers kind of fall in line with a few of the things I have to say. Um, so let's pray real quick. It's a good thing to do. God, thank you so much for this opportunity for us to gather together and to, to fellowship and to worship you and to learn about your word, God. I pray that you'd bless this time. your name we pray. Amen. All right, so um, let's think about last week. We got to hear Steve Miller preach on Matthew 11. And in his sermon, he asked the question, why do people reject God, or why do people reject Jesus? And what we'll find in Matthew 12 is that there's a very strong theme in there, and it's the Pharisees' rejection of Jesus. Also, one other thing to pull out from Steve's sermon is at the end of Matthew 11, Jesus has an invitation, and he says, uh, come to me, all you who labor and who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle, gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And so we're going to pick up right from where that ended and continue into Matthew 12. Um, and we find ourselves here in a grain field. And we can go ahead and pull up the slides. I think the, the grain field slide was my thing um, from earlier. Sorry, Tom. <laughs> uh, our slides got switched. But anyways, so here we are in a grain field. Jesus and his disciples, they're passing through the field on the way to the synagogue. Um, and actually, before we, before we go too much further, um, I actually want to step back because there's something I, I want to highlight at the end of Matthew 11. Um, in, in the verse we just read, Come to me, all who, all you who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. Right? So in this invitation from Jesus, there's a lot of emphasis on giving rest. And we're going to see in Matthew 12 that there is challenge, there's a challenge about the Sabbath, which was given for rest. Um, also, Jesus says, learn from me. And we're also going to see in Matthew 12, there is, there is a theme of learning from, from Jesus. But ultimately, this is an invitation. Um, from Jesus. So here we are in a grain field. Jesus and his disciples, Jesus and his disciples are passing through, and the Pharisees see them and they are like, "Hey, your disciples are breaking the law." Um, so what were the disciples doing? They're picking grain and they're eating it. And so the Pharisees are like, "They're breaking the law." Um, at that time, it was totally acceptable for people to, for the poor, to pick up the, like the leftover. Uh, pieces of food from the harvest. It was actually, I believe it was even a law that the, the farmers, they would leave behind food. They would only pass over once. And so what the disciples are doing is totally acceptable in that culture and in that time. However, the law that the Pharisees are accusing them of breaking is the Sabbath law. Um, so 
here Jesus responds to their accusation, their concern about his disciples breaking the Sabbath law. And he does this in a few different ways. If you remember from what we, what we read, he kind of responds with different examples. And one really significant example is when he mentions David and his men who were hungry. So we have Jesus and his men, they're hungry. David and his men, they're hungry. And David goes to the priest and he asks the priest uh, if he has any food. And the priest is like, well, no, I don't have any food except for the bread of the temple, the showbread. Um, and so the priest ends up giving that bread to David and his men, and he, um, they are able to eat the food, satisfy their hunger, etc. Um, but there's something that we kind of want to pause on here. It's a very important note. The, the priest in that temple, he had a decision to make, right? So on one hand, the, the bread is only lawful for the priest to eat. But on the other hand, there is David and his men are hungry and they have no food. And so what is he going to decide to do? Is he going to say, I'm sorry, we have bread, but it's not lawful for you to eat? Or is he going to show mercy on them and say, hey, eat this bread, this is all we have? So um, in this example, it's kind of cool what Jesus is doing with this because he's not just defending against Old Testament law, right? It's not like the Pharisees are accusing his disciples, and, and he's like stepping in like, oh, don't be so harsh on them, right? Um, but he's actually illuminating like the true intent of the law. He's shining a pure light on it and melting away man's bias and man's interpretation, which tends to mess things up. Um, and so next, um, uh, Jesus tells the Pharisees, uh, I think it's the next slide, and if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would have not condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Here, Jesus is quoting from Hosea. Um, and Hosea is a very interesting book. Um, unfortunately, I'm not really going to talk about it much. But the, the verse that he's quoting from Hosea, if you go to the next slide, for I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. And we're going to read this one more time, except we're going to read this in the New Living Translation. It means the same thing, but it, the way it's, the wording is, I think it works very well for communicating something. So here it says, I want you to show love, not offer sacrifices. I want you to know me more than I want burnt offerings. So, the story continues, right? Um, the Pharisees, if you think about it, you line them up with, with the priests in the temple, right? Would they have chosen to withhold the bread from David and his men? Just a question. So continuing the story, the, the disciples, they were just in the grain field, and now we walk to the synagogue. Next slide. Cool. Um, this is a rough idea of what the synagogue might have looked like. And inside the synagogue, we find a man who is afflicted in his hand. Uh, it's paralyzed, it's withered, um, it's unusable, right? And the Pharisees here, they know enough about Jesus to know that he is capable and very likely to heal this man. And they ask him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? A question, but maybe also an accusation. So we have to stop here because this is the same day. They literally just walked from the grain field into the synagogue 
And the Pharisees, Jesus has just explained this concept of, of showing mercy and not oppression, right? The, the, the true intent behind like this Sabbath law is to provide rest. And here the Pharisees, they somehow completely miss that in the sense that they're challenging him, like, are you actually going to heal this man? Um, and so, obviously, Jesus does heal the man. That's, that's what he would do, right? <laughs> um, and he then explains, explains more. In an example, Jesus gives of, like, the sheep being stuck in the ditch, Right? And he's, he's challenging the Pharisees, like, would you not pull that animal, your, your sheep, out of the ditch and in a sense provide it rest and mercy on the Sabbath? Like, there's, there's logic and there's reason here, and it's consistent with God's character, and he's just trying to show them this. Um, and I have to just kind of jump back to that verse at the end of Matthew where he's like, learn from me. As part of his invitation, Jesus is asking us to learn from him, and he's in a sense, you can sort of see him trying to teach the Pharisees or trying to at least explain truth, which they have unfortunately twisted. Uh, so next slide. Once again, I want you to show love, not offer sacrifices. I want you to know me more than I want burnt offerings. So how did the Pharisees get to this point, right? Where in an attempt to follow the Sabbath, they end up doing the opposite of the Sabbath, causing oppression and denying rest, right? That's not the, that's not the heart behind the, the Sabbath. Let's contrast the Pharisees and their relationship to the law with David and his relationship to the law. So if we think Psalm 119, it's a great chapter, very long chapter, kind of hard to read all at once, but it's David in many different ways saying how he loves the law, how he's how he wants to um, be, know more about the law, etc. And let's just read a few verses from there. Um, next slide. I want you to, actually, there we go. Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your laws. Out of your law. Uh, next verse, next slide. Give me understanding that I may keep your law and understand it with my whole heart. Then lastly, um, <laughs> oh, it's okay. Um, go to the next slide. Um, next slide. <laughs> Previous slide. <laughs> um, this, this, this is not necessarily Andrew's fault. I had some hiccups with the PowerPoint, and it, my thumb drive got corrupted because I was in a hurry, and I Anyways, um, so this is not quite the right version, but we're going to roll with this. Um, how did the slide just change? Uh, go back to that one slide you're just at. Yeah, we'll, we'll read this. Give me understanding that I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. Um, and let me see here. Yeah, and this, I don't know if we read this or not yet because I got a little confused, but also David says in Psalm 119, put false ways far from me and graciously teach me your law. He's wanting to be taught, and he's wanting to distance himself. Um, thank you. So, let's ask a question here. Was David's love for God's law counted against him? Of course not. So, how did the Pharisees get from a heart like David 
to a heart that they have displayed, one of oppression. The difference here, or a difference here, is that the Pharisees found their identity in the law. It defined them. It was their culture, their purpose, their cause. So how could God's law become an idol, an, an, an idol right? How, did, how could a, the Pharisees turn God's law into an idol? That's, that, feels, that feels wrong, right? Because God's word is, is pure. Um, so what is broken here? Thinking about the Pharisees and their, their relationship with the law. So uh, like on one hand, thinking about like David's relationship with the law, it's not unreasonable to want to love and serve God through obedience. And on the contrary, the Bible actually encourages us to do this, even to the point that one would take extra steps to avoid breaking God's law, something that the Pharisees did, right? Um, something that David points to when he's like, he wants to be, he wanted to separate himself from wrongdoing. Um, but something is definitely broken here. And once again, what is broken here, Right? Where does seeking after righteousness twist and pervert into oppression? For the Pharisees, the fault is in their hearts because they exalted the law above the author. So what about us, right? Um, Where do we sort of fit into this equation? It would be natural to choose not to relate to the Pharisees' story. Um, This message for the Pharisees, it's probably not for us, not for our church, right? probably for more of like a legalistic church. Um, it'd make more sense for them to hear, but maybe we've grown past that, but let's, let's hear this now. So as we're all painfully aware, and something even came up in our prayers earlier, we are living in an hour of civil unrest. There are controversies with COVID, with the police forces, um, with like the Black Lives Matter organization and, and just the black community in general. Um, also in this year, there's going to be a presidential election. Like, do we need more dividing lines in the sand? But we have them, right? And so the moment when we put these causes, right, good or bad, the moment when we put these causes on a pedestal above our role as believers is the same moment that they become our idol. In a sense, dethroning God and replacing him with the cause, Personally, I'm guilty of falling into this trap when, as I debate current issue, pride becomes my guide, right? Um, We, the church, do have an important role to play in this. But it is critical, it is absolutely important that we do so with love, humility, mercy, and kindness, and humility, and humility. For if we lose that, how are we not like the Pharisees? who traded their identity in Christ for an identity in the cause, the law, which although important, without God became destructive. So the law is beautiful when our hearts are turned towards God, but the law is ugly when our hearts are turned towards pride. The law brings life when our hearts are turned towards God, but the law brings destruction when our hearts are turned towards pride. You bring life to others when your heart is turned towards God, but you bring destruction towards others when your heart is turned towards pride. You carry the message well when your heart is turned towards God, but you destroy the message when your heart is turned towards pride. Slide. 
Next one. I want you to show love, not offer sacrifices. I want you to know me more than I want burnt offerings. So David and the Pharisees, not quite there yet, but that's okay. Um, David and the Pharisees, the law in their hand brought either life or destruction. And it was, in some ways, based on a heart towards pride and, or versus a heart towards God. So how can a good tree produce bad fruit? How can a heart towards God produce destruction? How can a bad tree produce good fruit? How can a heart towards pride produce life? There are things that don't mix here. Our ministries, our causes, our purposes as believers cannot be sustained without a love for God and a heart turned towards him. We know that, right? But it's sort of a a reminder because it's so easy to get off track, you know, with all the accusations, the the tension, etc. One of the themes for this year is to exercise bold, persistent prayer. And this is very important in the context of like, with these things, our heart deceives us, and a deceived heart cannot undeceive the deceived heart. That's kind of like a circular reasoning. We need an outside force really to, to change us. Um, and so in exercising bold, persistent prayer, and like the prayers we pray today, in addition to praying for our broken world and, some, and various things, we do want to also, I would encourage us to also pray that we don't get swept into the controversy, and respond with pride. Um, I want you to show love, not offer sacrifices. I want you to know me more than I want burnt offerings. So, back to the story. Uh, Next slide. God's chosen servant. So here we are back in Matthew 12. After Jesus heals the man, the Pharisees plot to kill Jesus. Bad choice, but they do it. Uh, So this is a turning point in Matthew. The Pharisees' heart the condition of their heart is, is very obvious here. So Jesus goes away uh, from the Pharisees who plot to kill him, and the author of Matthew, which may have been Matthew, um, quotes Isaiah, and we see sort of a, a beautiful picture of Christ's character here. Um, and you may notice some similarities in this verse and the last verse in, in chapter 11, where it where Jesus was making an invitation. Um, So previous slide, I believe. Next slide. Oh, hold on. There we go. Behold my servant, whom I have chosen, my beloved, with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break. And a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. And in his name, the Gentiles will hope. So the story continues. Slide and then slide again, I think. There we go, right here. Somehow, so we know Pharisees plot to kill Jesus. Jesus goes away. We have this quote from Isaiah. And somehow, Jesus and the Pharisees are in the same place at the same time again. Their paths cross, and we find a man who is mute, cannot speak, um, and is oppressed by a demon. And I believe that there's sort of an assumption here that the reason why he's mute is because he's oppressed by a demon. And Jesus heals the man, 
and the Pharisees accuse him of doing it by the power of Beelzebul. So let's, let's read. Let's, let's read this, this portion of the scripture. I believe this is the next slide. And as they were going away, behold, a demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke, and the crowds marveled, saying, Never was anything like this seen in Israel. Hold on. There's actually kind of a problem here, because if we notice, this is Matthew chapter 9, and I thought we were supposed to be in 12. Oops. Um, Next slide. Oh, previous slide. This is the version where I don't have the next slide, so I'm just going to have to read it to you. Um, In Matthew chapter 12, we have almost the same story. Um, So listen for the similarities and the differences. Then... 12, verse 22, if you want to read along. Then a demon-oppressed man, who is blind and mute, was brought to him. And he healed him, so that the man spoke and saw. And all of the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by the power of Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man cast out demons. Wow, like hearing that and looking at that, there's, there's, there's so much in, in common, right, between these two chapters. Um, Let's think about one of the differences we noticed here, or if you noticed it, maybe you caught it. Um, the man, the demon-oppressed man here, he's not just mute, but now in chapter 12, he's blind and mute. And here we do see the Pharisees, they're obviously blind when you consider the things Jesus has shared with them and their response. Here, the Pharisees... Um, have rejected God in many ways. Uh, We see Jesus has given God's wisdom and they reject his wisdom, done miraculous works, they reject his works, demonstrated his power over Satan and they deny it, twice at least, because this is the second example. Um, But this this sort of parallel between this progression of the Pharisees between then and now, between 9 and 12, is even more painfully obvious when we look at this other example. So now we can go to the next slide. There we go. So in Matthew 9, Jesus tells the Pharisees, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And then here we are again in 12. Jesus is saying, and if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would have not condemned the guiltless. Um, Thinking about the last verse in Matthew 11 again, where Jesus said, Learn from me, right? In a sense, the, this is a, I am interpreting this as a rejection, right? They, they've, they have not chosen the right thing. Um, and obviously, they did, not, they did not learn what this means, this concept that we're looking at today. So, the Pharisees, they're blind. And what is the outcome of their continual rejection? Like, what would be the outcome of the continual rejection of God? In short, death. Yes. Next slide. So back to the story. Um, maybe I don't have that slide. Sorry, guys. This is a little, little different than what I intended, but it's totally okay because the notes are the same. Um, so here, we're in this story. Jesus delivers the demon-possessed man. They say it's by the power of Satan or Beelzebul, just like they did in chapter 9. And what Jesus says next is unnerving. He tells the Pharisees that because of what they had said, they had blasphemed the Holy Spirit. 
Their actions would not be forgiven in this age or the age to come. And just a quick housekeeping note here. Um, the, where I mentioned that it says that because of what they had said, that's actually a quote from this same story in Luke. Um, that phrase is not used in Matthew. So if you're reading along and you don't see where the Bible said that, that is where you could find it. Um, so they, uh, catching up in my notes, um, he says that their actions, what they had done, is not going to be forgiven in this age or the age to come. Very sobering, very serious. When we look at this passage in the greater context, we see it was not just a formulation of words that was described as unforgivable. It goes much deeper than that. If you think about several chapters ago, we see them make the same accusation in the same scenario, right? Here it's the second time, and much has happened between now and then. They have rejected the wisdom of God. They have rejected him as the Messiah. They plot to kill him. And here they are again, not just mute, but they're also blind. Jesus' condemnation makes it clear their actions have led to death. And essentially, this is a story of the Pharisees' rejection of Jesus and its end result, which was death. So next slide. Oh, no, previous slide. I don't have that slide. It's okay. Um... One trap that is easy to fall into when reading Jesus' condemnation of the Pharisees is to be filled with doubts. It's easy to hear these words and ask the questions like, oh no, have I done that right? Because I'd be very bad if I did because it's unforgivable. Unforgivable. Um, But it's important to contextualize this, right? Because the Pharisees' rejection was a thorough one. They rejected his wisdom, rejected his power, rejected his mercy. They chose to kill him. And honestly, we could talk more about this. We could look a little bit more at what the scripture says around, around these verses. Um, and if you still have questions, that's a good thing. It's good to ask questions. It causes you to study more. Um, so I would encourage you to keep studying God's word. If you seek him, you will find him. So what do we have in common with these Pharisees, these Pharisees that Jesus has, Jesus has just condemned? And it's kind of an awkward question to ask, like what do we have in common with those guys who have just been mortally condemned by Jesus, Jesus himself? Well, that, 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 yeah, that's definitely something that I know I, I have in common with them. Um, one, one commonality is that the identity of Jesus has been revealed to us right? Here, Jesus has shown who he is to them, and we, we see that in, o- in other places here that we haven't quite looked at yet, but Jesus has revealed himself to them, and they have rejected him. Jesus has revealed himself to us, and we do have a response, right? Here in, in this chapter, in sort of the way this is laid out, we do see the condemnation of the Pharisees, and as unsettling as that is, there is an invitation to accept Christ. And there's, there's, there's invitations from, from Christ here if you, if you look at this, right? So um, another thing to sort of get us back in, into, into thinking, maybe not so much out of fear, but to, to remember that Jesus or God, he is patient, right? He is slow to anger, gently leading us. We write a bruised reed, he will not break. He has not come to tear us down. And at the end of Matthew 11, like we've talked about a few times, Jesus makes that invitation, come to me, all ye who are burdened and heavy laden. 
And at the end of this chapter, the chapter we're in, chapter 12, there's another invitation from Jesus. And this is kind of interesting because it's when Jesus is asking, like, well, who is my mother, my brother? And then he stretches out his hand and says, those who do the will of my father, you are my mother, my brother, right? That's almost, you could see that as an invitation, right? And another interesting thing about it is if you notice in the verse, it says he stretched out his hand. It's not plural, it's not hands. Um, And oftentimes, if you look at the Old Testament, the stretching out of a hand is associated with like rulership or kingship. Um, And so here he stretches out his, his hand, which could be seen as an invitation to rule with him to be a part of his kingdom. And just like Jesus called out to the man with the withered hand and asked him to stretch out his hand, giving him the ability to do so through Jesus, so here Jesus is extending his hand and offering us to be a part of his kingdom. I want you to, to show love, not offer sacrifices. I want you to know me more than I want burnt offerings. There's a few things that's interesting that happens when Jesus is condemning the Pharisees, because it goes on past when he just says that it will not be forgiven. He starts bringing up examples, um, and one of the examples he brings up is that how the people of Nineveh will rise up against them in the judgment, because they repented at, when, when the prophet Jonah, when he spoke, they repented. And here the Pharisees have not repented. And so here we have to think about where we fit into this. Like, where is our response? If the prophet Jonah, or a greater than the prophet Jonah, Jesus, right, is calling us, how, how do we respond in, in repentance? So let's look at how the people of Nineveh responded. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast nor flock, nor nor herd nor flock, taste anything, let them not feed or or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil ways and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent. And God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. It's quite a response. Quite a, quite a response of repentance. And here Jesus gives another example right after the prophet Jonah, uh, the queen of the south. So what was her response to, to Solomon? In Second Chronicles verse 9, it says, And when the queen of Sheba had seen the wisdom of Solomon, the house that he had built, the food on his table, the seating of his officials, and the attendance of his servants, and their clothing, his cupbearers, and their clothing, and his burnt offerings that he offered at the house of the Lord, there was no more breath in her. She was breathless. There's a theme that is lightly buried in, in chapter 9. In verse, or I'm sorry, in chapter 12. In verse 6, um, slide, it says, something greater then the temple is here. Jesus is our high priest. Slide. It says in verse 41, something greater than Jonah is here. Jesus is our prophet, not only to Israel, but to the Gentiles. And then in verse 42, it says something greater than Solomon is here. Jesus is king. He is truth and wisdom. Jesus is our priest who sacrifices life for us. He invites us to join him in the royal priesthood, but he's not only the priest. He's also the prophet that calls us to repentance and invites us 
to join with him in spreading his message, the gospel. But he is not only our priest and only our prophet, but he is also our king who rules over our lives and also invites us to rule with him. So one more time, I want you to show love, not offer sacrifices. I want you to know me more than I want burnt offerings. So as we worship together, let's turn our hearts towards God in response to his invitation. So one more time, let's pray. God, I pray that we would be open to your, your, your message, your invitation, that we would not respond out of pride, Lord, that we would, but that we would respond to you with our whole hearts. Lord, thank you again for this time that we have together, and I pray that as we worship you, that you would inhabit these, this place, God. In your name, amen.